Are self-driving cars safe? Skynet will kick our butts. The CVPR conference and the most well-funded startups in AI. All this plus a whole lot more on This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Hello, everyone, and welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI, the podcast where I bring you the most interesting and important stories from the world of machine learning and artificial intelligence. I'm Sam Charrington, and today is Friday, July 1st, 2016. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's show. A quick note before we get started, links to all of the articles and resources that I mentioned today will be available in the show's show notes, and you can find those at twimlai.com slash seven. That's T-W-I-M-L-A-I.com slash the number seven. Unfortunately, folks, we'll be starting things off today with some bad news from the self-driving car front. Tesla posted on their blog yesterday that an investigation has been opened up into the death of a Model S driver, and that death occurred while the car's autopilot system was engaged. The car's driver was a former Navy SEAL named Joshua Brown. Like many early Tesla customers, Joshua was a huge advocate of the company and technology and frequently Uh, posted videos, and tweeted about the autopilot system. The incident occurred back in May when Brown was apparently driving down a highway in Florida when a tractor-trailer heading in the opposite direction made a left turn in front of Brown's vehicle. Unfortunately, neither Brown nor his car saw this happen in time to prevent the vehicle from colliding with the trailer. The Model S struck the side of the trailer uh, with the nose going underneath the trailer itself and shearing off the roof of the car and apparently continuing on for uh, quite some distance until uh, colliding into a pole. Brown is the first known person to die in a self-driving car. For its part, Tesla, in its blog post, reemphasized the safety record of autopilot, noting that this is the first fatality in about 130 million miles of autopilot use, whereas among all vehicles in the U.S., there is one death every 94 million miles. The company also went on to suggest that autopilot likely had a difficult time seeing the trailer because Uh, its white paint blended with the brightly lit sky. The company also took pains to emphasize the voluntary and assistive nature of the technology and its repeated warnings to drivers to stay alert and keep control of the car. Since the news broke, there have been various reports that Brown was watching a movie, uh, reportedly Harry Potter, at the time of impact, suggesting that he wasn't, in fact, paying attention to the road. I'd say at this point it's inconclusive and we'll need to let the investigators uh, continue their work to figure that one out. The main question I've got here is, what about the car's radar? 
Tesla's autopilot uses both cameras and radar to avoid collisions. At least this is what they say. And so while the color of the truck might explain the image-based system's inability to see it, that shouldn't have stopped the radar from picking up the truck. Uh, or maybe it did, and the car didn't have enough time to react. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, Tesla's cars all have a black box, like a plane's flight data recorder, and that information has already been retrieved by Tesla for analysis. So I expect we'll uh, learn a lot more about what happened in the future. There's also a risk that this accident gets politicized, and hopefully the fact that it's election season means that we might be spared this. But the Wall Street Journal reported on the near-term political implications today. Apparently, the government agency with jurisdiction here, the National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration, is pretty toothless when it comes to regulating self-driving cars, though. However, the agency is publishing a set of safety guidelines in July. We'll see soon how those guidelines may be impacted by uh, this event. Personally, I'm hoping that the government stays out of this and allows innovation in this area to continue to flourish. I think Tesla's done a pretty good job explaining how the technology is meant to be used. And at face value, the record seems to suggest that driving with autopilot is safer than without. That said, I'm not quite ready to let Tesla off the hook here. First of all, I'm calling BS on the stats. Comparing the safety of the Tesla to the safety of all known vehicles and service in the U.S. doesn't really hold water for me. It doesn't feel right. Uh, there's a known linkage between vehicle safety and fatalities and vehicle age. And the uh, NHTSA stats suggest that the driver of the average age vehicle in the U.S., which is now over 11 years old, uh, has a 20% greater chance of dying in an accident than the driver of a vehicle that's less than three years old. So it'd be more appropriate for Tesla to quote stats comparing the autopilot safety record of the Model S to that of relatively new vehicles. Furthermore, if the company really wanted to make an accurate comparison, they'd be looking at not just newer vehicles, but newer $60,000 plus vehicles, which likely have a whole array of additional safety features. But my issue with Tesla isn't just... Uh, quibbling with its stats. Uh, I think there's a more fundamental issue here, and that is that we spend a lot of time in this industry pondering esoteric questions, you know, the quote-unquote uh, trolley question, you know, like if my car has to choose between saving me or a pedestrian, how is it going to make that choice? Uh, but in this case, we've got a car whose autopilot features let it run into the side of a truck. I mean, really, Tesla, you've got to do better here. Um, I don't think you can explain what happened quickly enough. And the systems that control autopilot really need to be updated to uh, better perform in these kinds of scenarios. Since this story broke, it's gotten quite a bit of mainstream media attention. And only time will tell uh, how this all plays out. Next, 
A paper published this week by a couple of Oxford faculty explores the implications of the General Data Protection Regulation, a set of policies governing the collection, storage, and use of personal information that was adopted in April by the European Parliament. The paper explores two issues raised by the GDPR that affect the use of algorithmic decision-making. If the GDPR takes effect in its current form in mid-2018, as is expected to be the case, these articles may require huge changes to the machine learning landscape and the way companies put machine learning to use. The first issue raised by the authors relates to the non-discrimination provisions of the law's Article 11, which covers automated individual decision-making. You'll recall we talked about some of the bias issues associated with machine learning back in show two of this podcast. Well, the GDPR, at least this section of the GDPR, seeks to address some of the issues raised in our discussion uh, back then. Paragraph one of the article states that decisions made solely on automated processing, including profiling, which significantly affect an EU subject will be prohibited unless otherwise allowed by EU or individual country laws which safeguard the rights and freedoms of the subject and ensure the rights to obtain human intervention. Paragraph 2 says that even those decisions allowed in paragraph 1 may not be based on special quote-unquote protected categories of personal data unless suitable measures are put in place to safeguard the subject's rights, freedoms, and interests. And paragraph three says that any profiling that results in discrimination on the basis of special categories of data will be prohibited. The authors of the paper argue that the law is problematic for a few reasons. Uh, First, because it can be broadly interpreted to include any data that is correlated to the special categories of data. This would require that users bear the responsibility of ensuring that their algorithms are not fed with data that's correlated to any of these special categories. This is a problem, uh, as the authors note, because as data sets become large, correlations can become really difficult to detect, and less obvious correlations Uh, the example they gave was between browsing time and income, are likely to exist and lead to discriminatory results. With sufficiently large data sets, it may be impossible to rule out any such correlations. The next challenge posed by the GDPR comes from its provisions which state that subjects have the right to an explanation of the decision reached after assessment. Uh, The authors point out that while explainability is feasible for some types of machine learning models, more complex models are notoriously difficult to explain. Think support vector machines or neural networks here. The article suggests that while the goals of this law are laudable, the challenges it creates for users of machine learning are potentially steep and thus provide opportunities for future research. I've got to say that I'm with the authors on this one. We're pretty obviously at the beginning of a long road here, and a lot of work is going to have to go into ensuring that machine learning 
algorithms don't propagate uh, human biases and worse become enablers for or shields for discriminatory practices. Next up, in business. Well, remember last week when I talked about research firm CB Insights and their summary of uh, AI startup financing? Well, they're back again, this time with more details. In an article this week, the firm named the 10 most well-funded startups developing core AI technology. Uh, You may recall that in last week's show, I was a little frustrated with CB Insights' initial uh, findings in that they included as AI startups many companies which only tangentially used machine learning and AI technologies. Well, that complaint doesn't really apply to this list, and they've done a good job of limiting it to companies that are very much focused on machine learning and AI. The companies on the top 10 list are Sentient Technologies at number one, with total funding of $143.8 million. Ayazdi, with funding of $97.9 million. Digital Reasoning Systems, uh, with $75.6 million in funding. Vicarious Systems, at $67 million. Data Robot, at $57.4 million. Face++, at $48 million. Cortica at $37.4 million, Effectiva at $34.2 million, H2O at $30.6 million, and Vive Labs at $30 million. The first three of these companies are what I think of as applied machine learning companies. They hire a bunch of really smart machine learning people, develop some core technology frameworks, and then apply them to industries like retail, insurance, financial services, uh, government, etc. I think of these as really a lot like Palantir to some degree or another, although they've probably all been funded before that came to mean uh, bad things, as it, as it has in some ways. Vicarious, Face++, Quartica, and Effectiva, numbers 4, 6, 7, and 8 on this list, are all focused on cognitive computing, looking at things like visual understanding and visual search. The number five and number nine companies on this list, DataRobot and H2O, offer machine learning toolkits, the former based on the cloud and the latter uh, based on open source. And of course, the number 10 on this list, Vive Labs, is the new company by Siri creator Dag Kitlis, What Vive is looking to do is to enable a new wave of virtual assistants. These companies are all at various stages of development. Some of them I've been following for years now. Uh, H2O and digital reasoning uh, come to mind, while others uh, have made PR splashes but don't really have anything to show. Uh, A good example of that perhaps is Vive Labs that has a really sweet demo that uh, they did on stage at a TechCrunch Disrupt conference, but hasn't really produced anything since. Yet and still, it remains a nascent market for machine learning and AI companies. And with a raise like $30 million, a company like Vive Labs has uh, a bit of runway to figure out its product and get it to market. I'm really looking forward to seeing what uh, all these companies turn into. 
This week, we saw Swiss-based online scheduling software maker Doodle acquire Tel Aviv-based Mikan, a company offering machine learning-based appointment scheduling via chatbot interfaces for Slack and HipChat. No financial details of the deal were announced. I took a quick look at the Mikan product demo, and I actually really liked the user experience. It looked pretty slick. I do know firsthand that Doodle's user experience leaves a lot to be desired, uh, but in spite of that, the company serves over 25 million users a month. While we don't know anything about the financial details here, I think this was a great deal for both companies. You know, Doodle is not necessarily in a sexy space, and having a story around machine learning and AI, I think, is a great move for the company. And at the same time, for the Mikan team, now they've got 25 million users to help train their algorithms. Not many. Another Israeli machine learning company was in the news this week. TechCrunch reports that Articulo launched their machine-based content generation service. The promise of this service is that you enter in a handful of words and the service will automatically generate 250 to 500 word articles for you ready for posting directly to your content farm. I tried it a few times, and the only thing I could get it to generate an article for was the Kim Kardashian example that was quoted in the TechCrunch article. Personally, I find the whole, uh, the general space of generative AI exciting, but I'm not excited at all about filling the web with more crappy content. Let's hope the folks at Articulo find a higher purpose to serve. Next up, I want to bring your attention to a couple of really interesting articles I came across this week. The first is a piece called The Business Implications of Machine Learning by Drew Brunig. What I found interesting here is that Drew coins the term reciprocal data applications, or RDAs, to describe applications that offer consumers a service in exchange for those consumers training their machine learning models for them. Facebook Photos and Google Search are discussed as examples, and the company we spoke about a few minutes ago, Mikan, uh, would be another great example. Uh, Drew suggests that RDAs and the machine learning models they create will be a new source of network effects for modern startups. He goes on to outline the rules for solid RDAs and offers some suggestions for companies that want to implement them. The rules are... Apps must be networked, preferably all the time. Nearly all compute happens off device. Good apps need big audiences and lots of usage. And good apps encourage the creation of accurate data. The saying, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product, has been around for a long time. Uh, but I really appreciate having some terminology to describe what's really happening here, at least in the context of machine learning and AI applications. And I expect to hear more people using the terminology uh, RDA in the future. The next article I want to briefly mention is a Bloomberg piece called How Amazon Triggered a Robot Arms Race. The article talks about Amazon's 2012 acquisition of robotics company Kiva for $775 million and the ripple effects that purchase has had. Besides from just a really interesting backstory... I was particularly struck by one early paragraph. 
I'm quoting here, Amazon has about 30,000 Kiva robots scuttling about its warehouses across the globe. According to an analysis by Deutsche Bank, adding them to one new warehouse saves $22 million in fulfillment expenses. Bringing the Kivas to the 100 or so distribution centers that still haven't implemented the tech would save Amazon a further $2.5 billion. Really, the scale and scope of the opportunity around robotics is just massive, and it's just one part of the overall opportunity around artificial intelligence, machine learning, and intelligent systems. Check this article out. The backstory here is really interesting. This was another big week for machine learning researchers as the 29th IEEE Conference on Computer Vision and Pattern Recognition, or CVPR, attracted 3,600 attendees to Las Vegas. The conference program committee received about 2,100 papers, and 643 of these were accepted for publication. Zishin Zia, a computer vision PhD working at NEC Labs, posted a great summary of the conference in response to a question over at Quora. Zishin briefly looks at the uh, papers that he found most interesting from this year's CVPR, but notes that he found himself a bit disappointed and that many of the papers presented were already obsolete. One of the examples he mentions is a poster session he saw on convolutional pose machines. These apply convolutional neural nets to the problem of estimating the poses of one or more people in a given real-world scene. In other words, we're trying to identify the various body parts in the scene and note their position and which person they belong to. The work in that poster session uses separately trained sequential convolutional neural nets that produce increasingly refined estimates of the various body part locations. However, the paper's authors, all from the CMU Robotics Institute, acknowledge that you can do the same now with a single deeper neural network using the ResNets approach, or deep residual learning, a technique for training deeper neural nets that was developed by a team from Microsoft Research and that's already in wide use. Incidentally, the deep residual learning paper won one of this year's CVPR conference's Best Paper Awards. On a side note, a researcher named Jordi Pontusset has been tracking the evolution of deep learning in the computer vision field for the past few years and notes that at CVPR, nearly 25% of accepted papers are based on deep learning. He's got a pretty nice graph of deep learning penetration at CV conferences, and he includes the Python script to use to generate it. For more on CVPR, I'll be dropping links to the list of accepted papers, Zishan's summary, as well as a daily summary by lab 41 Sri Chandrasekhar that I found interesting. Check out the show notes for more on CVPR. This week, news hit of a paper published in the Journal of Defense Management describing research into a combat AI system by a team of current and former University of Cincinnati researchers working with the Air Force Research Laboratory. 
You may have seen the headlines, which heralded the fact that for the first time, the AI beat human combat experts in simulated dogfights last fall. The paper, which is titled Genetic Fuzzy-Based Artificial Intelligence for Unmanned Combat Aerial Vehicle Control in Simulated Air Combat Missions, how's that for a mouthful, describes an AI called Alpha. Alpha is based on a concept called fuzzy logic. Uh, Unlike binary logic that deals only in true and false, fuzzy systems are designed with continuous logic that can deal with a range of partial trues. Fuzzy logic is popular in control systems because it tends to result in pretty robust adaptable systems that have the benefit of being highly explainable and thus verifiable using formal methods. So the team behind Alpha use what are called genetic fuzzy trees to create their AI. GFTs are an implementation of genetic fuzzy systems in which a genetic algorithm evolves all of the various components of the fuzzy controller using an optimization process that mimics natural selection. The Alpha AI cut its teeth flying against Air Force Research Lab AIs in the AFRL simulator. The simulation process resulted in many different random versions of Alpha that were then pitted against a human-tuned version. The winning versions were then bred with each other such that the best-performing traits of each version went into a new evolved version, which was then pitted against other versions of the AI. Eventually, a single alpha emerged, and this one was tested against retired USAF Colonel Gene Lee in the simulator. In summary, the AI kicked his butt. Quoting Lee, I was surprised at how aware and reactive it was. It seemed to be aware of my intentions and reacting instantly to my changes in flight and missile deployment. It knew how to defeat the shot I was taking. It moved instantly between defensive and offensive actions as needed. According to Lee, experienced pilots could pretty easily beat up on previous AI opponents. After flying multiple multi-hour simulated missions with the Alpha as his opponent, though, he says he goes home feeling wasted out. He's tired, drained, and mentally exhausted. This may be artificial intelligence, but it represents a real challenge. It turns out that the Alpha AI was able to win even when it was given inferior planes to fly. Planes that were deliberately handicapped, either with uh, lower top speeds, shorter missile ranges, or inferior sensors. The Alpha team is continuing to train Alpha against other pilots, and they eventually hope that it can be trained to control real combat drones, and work in teams with human pilots. To me, this story makes one thing very clear. Terminator had it right. If it's ever us versus Skynet in air-to-air combat, we are going to lose pretty badly. The silver lining here, though, is that maybe this work really represents the ultimate end of war. If war is eventually going to be fought drone versus drone, At some point, maybe we wise up and just fight the war in a simulator. But maybe Elon's right, and that's what's happening now. Oh, man, my head hurts. 
Next up in projects and hands-on. If you're looking for some motivation to get started on your next AI project, IBM and the XPRIZE organization have something for you. They announced last week a $5 million AI XPRIZE and registration is open now. This appears to be a reboot of an AI XPRIZE that was announced in 2014 with TED, the conference, the goal of which was to develop an AI able to create and deliver a compelling TED Talk unaided by humans. Well, it looks like IBM and XPRIZE have learned the error of their ways and that they have no idea what we'll be able to accomplish in AI over the next four years. This time, there's no apparent goal associated with the contest. Rather, Teams will create their own challenges and demonstrate achievement against those challenges over the course of three intermediate competitions and at a grand prize competition. So we can kind of think of this as American Idol for AI. AI for AI. Whoa. Well, I don't know about you, but I would totally watch a reality show based on this competition. If you're interested in working on bots, you should probably know that Facebook announced its first major update to the Messenger platform today. As far as I can tell from a quick glance at the change log, the biggest change appears to be the new Quick Replies feature, which allows bots to throw up new buttons and prompts for users. I personally think this makes bots a lot more useful, and I like the UI examples that I saw on the announcement page. The topic of bots and user interfaces was the subject of a great blog post by Matthew Hannibal that came out this week called, A Natural Language User Interface is Just a User Interface. With chat user interfaces, or what Matthew calls linguistic user interfaces, or LUIs, which I kind of like, we've got to catch up on all of the thinking and analysis that we've built up for GUIs. And this post does a great job drawing some high-level parallels between the two. This was a bit of a thought piece and perhaps not as hands-on as much of the stuff we discuss in this section of the podcast, but really interesting nonetheless for folks building chatbots. And if you're interested in this, I really encourage you to take a look at the article. If you'd like to get started building chatbots and you're not quite sure where to start, you probably want to start with one of the many chatbot APIs that have become available over the past few months. The good news is for you that our buddy Siraj Raval, whose Machine Learning for Hackers YouTube channel we've looked at before, has got us covered. In the latest episode, ML for Hackers number nine, Siraj walks us through the pros and cons of the most popular chatbot frameworks and then chooses the best to build an actual chatbot. Of course, he provides the actual code in his GitHub so you can follow right along. And if you're wondering, he likes the API.ai framework the best. Last but not least, I want to give a quick mention to a set of slides posted this week by Justin Basilico from Netflix. These slides come from his recent talk at ICML. Just like we've got to build up a new science around linguistic UIs to match what we've developed for GUIs, we've also got to build up a new set of development practices for machine learning and AI to parallel those that we've created for traditional applications. 
One set of practices that has greatly aided application architects over the past decade has been the sharing of architectural design patterns. And it's good to see the same starting to happen in the machine learning world. Justin's talk, which was titled, Is That a Time Machine? Some Design Patterns for Real-World Machine Learning Systems, focuses on a handful of useful patterns and anti-patterns for avoiding the types of problems that come up due to the inherent differences between the offline systems that we use to build machine learning models and the live production systems that we deploy those models to, and the differences in code and data that exist in both of these worlds. The deck walks through a handful of patterns. Examples are the Sentinel pattern, the Hulk, the Lumberjack, the Online Archive, and the Time Machine. For each of these, Justin provides an example of the pattern, along with the pattern's pros and cons. Not having heard his talk, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here, but if you're building online recommendation systems, you should really be thinking about these patterns and how they apply to your situation. Before we go, I want to call your attention to an upcoming conference that looks like it'll be really interesting. The fifth annual Data Science Summit will be held in a couple of weeks, the 12th and 13th of July in San Francisco. And the list of speakers looks like a who's who of folks mentioned in previous shows of the podcast. Speakers will include Google TensorFlow's Jeff Dean, Alex Smola, who I mentioned a couple of shows ago, was just hired by Amazon to run its machine learning cloud, and University of Washington professor Pedro Domingos, who was quoted on the podcast just last week in our discussion on Silicon Valley's AI culture wars. I'll be including a link to the summit's website in the show notes, and I encourage you to take a look at the lineup. The conference organizers have been kind enough to offer a special 20% discount to listeners of This Week in Machine Learning and AI. So if you decide to register, use the code TWIML20, T-W-I-M-L-2-0. All right, everyone, that's another show. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, I really want to hear from you. Let me know, what do you think about this Tesla crash? What's Tesla's responsibility here? What do you think about the issue of machine learning and bias? How can we address that? What do you think about these startups that I've talked about? I want to hear from you and I want to know what's on your mind. You can let me know by dropping a comment in the show notes or sending a tweet to at Sam Charrington. S-A-M-C-H-A-R-R-I-N-G-T-O-N. And there's someone else I want to hear from you, and that's iTunes. Please, if you can take a second, jump over to iTunes, follow the link in the show notes, and post a review and a rating. Uh, They make such a huge difference in getting the word out there. Thanks so much, and have a great week.